And as, as is so appropriate on this day, this Easter Sunday, we also call Resurrection Sunday of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is He who is known as the Living Word. It is He who has given us the Holy Writ that we read and study and we live on. And I call your attention this morning to our ongoing study in the book of Hebrews. If you are new with us here today, been teaching through the book of Hebrews verse by verse from verse 1, chapter 1. And we are now in chapter 9. I'm many times amazed at the way in which the Lord can have us in the perfect place the book of Hebrews for the celebration of Easter, and I think this is a perfect Easter text. As a matter of fact, it's now my new most favoritistest Easter text. Hebrews chapter 9, please follow along as I begin reading in verse 11. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all. Having obtained eternal redemption, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. When Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Would you bow in prayer with me this morning as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word? Lord God, blessed Father, preparer of the perfect plan for the redemption of of fallen man. Blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who righteously and in his holiness voluntarily offered himself up, for no man took his life. You laid it down. Blessed be your name. Hallelujah to the Holy Spirit, who raised him from the dead. Death was defeated that day, and life proffered to man. We thank you for that. And we pray today, O oh Lord God, that you take these verses, these words that are your words, that are powerful, that are sharper than any two-edged sword, and do with them according to this book of Hebrews for the piercing, for the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow for the discernment of the hearts and intents of men. We ask your blessing in this way and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
On Friday, Jesus died. A bleak day. And then he rose on the first day of the week. A great day. And then 40 days later, he left the earth. Listen to these words that describe these two things given to us by Luke in both cases. The first in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. Verse 2, Luke 24, But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went. They went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And so he died, and so he rose again. And after 40 days of teaching the disciples of the kingdom to come, Luke now records in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, the ascension of Jesus. Now when he, Jesus, had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, Two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. We celebrate all of these aspects of the work of Christ. The end result is real and difficult. I can only imagine for the Hebrews who for such a short time had received their Messiah, Jesus, who had seen him walk in power and might and great wisdom and understanding, and seemingly able to take over the world, but yet he didn't. He was crucified. He died. He rose again. And then just when they were getting used to his presence with them again, he leaves. He ascends into heaven. Certainly it is difficult to lose your Savior. A dead Messiah is difficult. A resurrected Messiah is wonderful. But a God who has gone to heaven is simply gone. And that is the difficulty of the Hebrews to which this book was written, and to us today, isn't it? I mean, don't we sometimes in our heart of hearts wish a wish, pray a little prayer? I wish Jesus were physically here now. I wish I could see him. Even the question might be asked, and even rightly so, why must he be gone? Why must he be gone so long? What could he be doing that he couldn't do here? Well, I'm glad you asked. For the reality is that life on earth and what Jesus did on earth was not the end of the ministry of Jesus. It was the beginning. And all of us would like that glimpse into heaven, that little view of what's going on there. And as we have said over the last few weeks, so many people have written so many books. There's so many personal accounts of so-called visions of heaven, and I'm sure they've seen something. 
But I say to you this morning, as I said to you last week, and I will say it again throughout time, if you want a vision, if you want a glimpse of heaven, then you need to go to the source, the true source of heaven. If you want to see what it's like, you need to ask God, what is it like? What is Jesus doing up there? at the right hand of the Father, in this place. What's happening? So this morning we get a, a glimpse of heaven. We're taking a transportation, if you will, from the earthly tabernacle that was once on earth, where worship happened day by day, priests ministered day and night, and in constancy sacrifices being offered. But our text said in Hebrews 9, 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things which have come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. There is a tabernacle in heaven and it is that tabernacle that is the original tabernacle. It is that tent. It is that dwelling place of God that is in heaven and from which the Hebrews were given instructions to build the one they worshipped God in on earth. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we have been saying, the writer says. We have such a high priest, listen, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You want a view of heaven? Here it is. What should you visualize? Jesus seated there at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. Listen. Here's what he's doing, a minister of the sanctuary and of the, listen, pay attention, of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Who built the tabernacle in heaven? God built the tabernacle in heaven. Not with hands, God has no hands. God is spirit. He dwells in unapproachable light. And yet there is in heaven a tabernacle. Why isn't that in the books? That reached the top seller list in the Christian bookstores and in the tabloids and all across the world. I saw heaven. Compare it to this and choose. I choose this. This is far better, far more hopeful and far more informative. A minister ministering in the sanctuary, the holy place, the most holy place of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Listen, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, this Jesus, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, why isn't he on earth? For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Verse 5, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. So everything that Israel had in the tabernacle of God, even the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim golden above and the presence of God there are copies. The original is in heaven. And the original site of worship and ministry is where Jesus is today. He's not here. He's there. And he is working as a high priest there. For if he were on earth, he would be disqualified. But since he's of the order of Melchizedek, he is qualified to serve the heavenly tabernacle. Verse 6 of chapter 8 says, But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he also mediates, is a mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. Hear this, O Hebrews, this day. Hear this, you Gentiles. There is a better ministry than 
all the hundreds of years of ministry that took place in Jerusalem, in Israel. And it is Jesus who ministers there. We take a glimpse into heaven. We see what happens there. For Jesus there is accomplishing, as he said in verse 12, the eternal redemption. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place in heaven once for all. Verse 12, chapter 9. And then he brought about the purging and his accomplishments of your conscience from dead works. So every work that you ever would have done on your own and in your own strength and apart from faith. He purges those from your conscience. Verse 14. And now our study this morning in verse 15, for this reason, he is mediator. He is a go-between of the new covenant by means of death. Stop there and just think. Why did Jesus die? Many a time on Easter's, the redemption of Jesus is preached. He has bought us from the slave pits of hell and sin and brought us into newness of life, eternal life. But what about this? That he also had to die. When we look into heaven, we must look into heaven and glimpse the heavenly purpose of Jesus, of the death of Jesus. He is now the mediator of a new set of promises that eclipses and does away with the Mosaic law by death, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions, for the transgressions under the first covenant, to buy back the failures of the Hebrews for all time. To purchase with his blood and his death all of the transgressions of the law. For every time Israel broke the Ten Commandments, they were guilty. When they broke the food laws, guilt. When they broke the cleanliness laws, guilt. When they broke the sacrificial laws, conviction. When they broke the civil laws, even ostracization. When they broke the moral laws, Jesus had to die. He paid for them all. Let's give you just a quick preview by skipping to verse 28, or excuse me, 22, chapter 9 where it says, and according to the law, almost all things are purged with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no way for him to redeem the transgressions done under the first covenant, but by his death. The purpose of Jesus in heaven was to redeem the transgressions under the first covenant. And there's much more I will say about this as I open the rest of this book. And so this Easter message, I will camp here. Letter B in your notes the heavenly purpose of the death of Jesus, letter B, is to ensure that the called, listen to me, is to ensure that the called will receive eternal inheritance. Eternal inheritance. Today we are going to talk about inheritance, last wills, and testaments, and who's involved. Jesus is in heaven to ensure the call receive the internal inheritance, and he had to die to ensure it. Let me begin by saying there are two essential requirements for one to inherit. You know, it's an amazing thing to watch people when they find out that someone in their family has written a will, and they're in it. Inheritance. Because it's being gifted. Something is coming to you that you didn't buy, that you didn't earn, 
that you don't deserve even. But there's two essential requirements for it, and, and these are those. There must be a will. If you die without a will, nobody knows where it's supposed to go. It becomes a different sort of legal problem. There must be a will. There must be this essential. And by the way, kids, we start here. If you're going to be listening, if you're going to be uh, ready for those special things on Easter that I always provide for your special expository listening, if you're able to tell me the two essential requirements, you'll receive a prize. And then later, if you're able to tell me the four blessings, you will as well. And there'll be other questions, so... Write well, listen well. Back to our regularly scheduled program. Two essential requirements for one to inherit. There must, in the first place, be a will. There must be a last will and testament. Look at our text. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So if there is a testament, something's going to be required. But there has to be, in the first place, a testament. This word testament here, by the way, is the same word that we've been translating as covenant all throughout Hebrews. A covenant is a promise, but it's a legal promise that binds the one promising and in the United States and across the world, we use the term last will and testament because the person who's making the will is testifying and giving a promise of what they are going to pass on. So there needs to be a last will and testament. And in that will, the testator must be named. A will in which the testator is named. The person writing the will who has the stuff Names himself. Who is it here? For where there is a testament. Verse 15 at the end. Who are those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Well, notice there, he is our pronoun. He is the mediator of a new covenant, a new promise. And then we skip back just a little bit to verse 11. But Christ, who is it that's, whose name is on this last will and testament? Verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good thing to come. This is Christ. And again, in verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, Christ is named. We would write it perhaps in some of this way in the legal ease of our day. We say, I, Jesus Christ, being of sound mind, without coercion, without any sort of pressure, do hereby bequeath all my worldly possessions. Oh, and here's the second thing you need. Someone to inherit. You can name yourself in the will, but now you need someone to receive what is willed. They're called the inheritors. The testator names himself, and a will must be there with a testator named, but also the inheritors are named. Notice our text, verse 15, that those who are called may receive the promise. Those who are named are called the called. You know the funny thing about the law and wills? If you own anything, you get to decide who you give it to. It's your legal right. If it's yours, you can give it to whomever you desire. There's no law saying you have to pass it on to close family. There's no law saying you have to pass it on to somebody who is good to you or not. You can give it to whomever you desire. And here is the desire of God Here's the desire of Jesus Christ in his last will and testament that those who are called may receive this promise. You see, the scene is like this in the lawyer's office. The lawyer has the last will and testament. Those who are named in the last will and testament 
or those who hope to be named in the last will and testament, gather in the office. And then there is the reading of the will in which with bated breath and on the edge of their seats, those who are hoping to be named in the will, wait. They wait for their name to be called. If it's not called, you're not in. If it's called by the testator, you're in. That's the way it works. We all know about it. It worked then when Hebrews was written. It works that way now. By the way, if you don't have a will, make one out. That's free of charge. Important thing to have in your life. The inheritors are named. The word to inherit is defined this way. The first definition of inherit is this. According to Webster's, it is to receive from an ancestor as a right or title descendable by law at the ancestor's death. Okay. But the one I want to point out to you is the fourth definition of to inherit, and it is this. It is this. It's to come into possession of or receive especially as a right. Now, here, hear it, here it is. To receive especially as a right of divine portion. What God decides to give to you. A divine portion. The language of an inheritance is legal ease. And to know you're in there, you must be called. In this very book of Hebrews, in the beginning chapters, chapter 3, verse 1, we read this, Therefore, holy brethren. So who are these called? Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly what? Help me calling. So how do you get in the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ, you get there by calling, by him calling your name, and you are in there as a brother because you're a partaker of the heavenly calling. And so verse 1 calls us to consider, and verse 3, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Paul picks up this very idea in 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning, listen, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in the gospel, if you responded to the, the history and the proclamation that Jesus Christ came, he suffered and died on the cross, he rose again on the third day, conquering and paying the price for all your sins, then you, my friend, are a believer. Called. You are a called one, and you are in the last will and testament of Jesus the Christ. That's the first essential. There must be a will, and the testator must be named, and the inheritors must be named. And now second, the second essential, the second requirement that is essential to inherit is this. The testator must die. Why did Jesus have to die? He had to die for this reason as well. The testator must die to pass on his inheritance. Verse 16, for where there is a testament, where there is a last will and testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force when? 
after men are dead. It is always considered to be the highest form of greed when someone in a family wants their inheritance before their relative is dead. Is that not true? It is still true today. One of you believes it, the rest of you are on the fence. I'm not sure. It's still bad. The prodigal son was so prodigal because he wanted his inheritance before his dad was dead. In a sense, he was wishing his father dead so he could take the money early and spend it, which thing he did. That is still bad. The testator must die. If you want to inherit, that is a requirement that puts into force, that ratifies the promissory note penned by the testator. Jesus had to die. That's what Easter is about. But we forget this part. The death is why he came, and inheritance is a result. Throughout this book of Hebrews, we have read of the death of Christ again and again. I do this by way of reminder, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, listen, might taste death for everyone. This gives us the answer to why Jesus had to die. He had to taste death for everyone. Further down in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, listen. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. This tells us that Jesus had to come as fully man. Certainly Jesus was fully God, but as he walked on earth, he walked exactly as a man would walk in the power only of the flesh. And his miracles done by the power of the Holy Spirit. He walked as a man so that he could share in the same, listen, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And release those who, through fear of death, were all their lives subject to that bondage. Isn't that what we sang? Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. That's the story of inheritance. Hebrews 5 as well, the death of Christ, a necessity. Verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. God was able to save Jesus from death and God did not do it. If you're going to inherit, he must die. If you're going to be saved, he had to die. A necessity of the plan and purpose of God. That's the second essential. The testator must die. And now there are four significant blessings of his inheritance. And this, and this brothers and sisters, is your Easter basket full of God's blessings. There are four significant blessings of this inheritance. Kids, if you memorize at least two of these, both of the passing ons or of the blessings, you're in. Number one, the first significant blessing of his inheritance is the passing on of permanence. The passing on of permanence. Well, look again at Hebrews 9, 15 that those who are called may receive the promise of what? The eternal inheritance. The forever inheritance. This is the blessing of security. Why are we assured of our inheritance? Is it because we have all of these things? 
Is it because we have done so many good things? No, it's because we are in line to inherit by virtue of having been named in the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. You get what he has because he said so. Permanently. Securely. It is durable. It does not wear out. The term eternal means that which we cannot understand. Forever and ever. Amen. So what Jesus passes on is permanent. This word eternal is used three times in rapid succession right here in the near context. Verse 12. Not with the blood of bulls, of, of goats and calves, excuse me, but with his own blood, he, Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained, listen, eternal redemption. And then just skipping down just to verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through thee, here it is, the eternal spirit offered himself. And then again in verse 15, the promise of eternal inheritance. It's durable, it's lastable, it's guaranteed. Getting ahead of ourselves, we give a preview of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, that accentuates this principle, the permanence of the passing along. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the, hear me, everlasting covenant. The permanent, enduring testament of promise. This prayer is then raised. Going back from our text, we read Hebrews 7 now, verse 23. It says also, there were many priests... Speaking of the time in Israel and the earthly tabernacle, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, now here's the difference between Jesus and every earthly priest. Every priest in the line of Levi, every son of Aaron that ever was, died and his ministry ended. But here's a different one. But he, Jesus, because he, listen, verse 24, continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood, durable, secure, everlasting. Verse 25, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, listen, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I will rise again on the third day. Ain't no power on earth going to keep me down. I'll rise again. And he rose permanently to minister in heaven on high. Your picture of heaven is your permanent priest, Jesus Christ, ministering on your behalf and passing on his inheritance to you in a perfectly pure, holy, and ongoing way. The second significant blessing of this inheritance. The first is its permanence. The blessing of security. The second is the passing on of wealth. The passing on of wealth, the blessing of abundance. When someone writes you into your will, the hope is they've got something you want. I'm just saying that out loud because that's the truth. Somebody turns out to give you their rock collection. They came from the driveway. Thanks, Uncle Bob. We want wealth. That's what we think about with inheritance, right? Wealth. I know that's selfish. I know that's not a right way to, to think about it, but there it is. And if there is hope in Jesus Christ, what is he passing on? It's permanent. Great. 
What is it? What is it? What is it? What is the wealth that he is passing on? This blessing of abundance. There was a rich young ruler who came to Jesus. He wanted to follow him. Just tell me what I got to do to follow you. And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. Oh, the rich young ruler said in his pride, in his total lack of humility, oh, this I've done since my youth. I'm in. Oh, Jesus said, this one more thing I give to you to do. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Come, follow me. The book of Matthew records that this poor, rich, young ruler who is rich went away poor and downcast because he was very rich and he wouldn't go sell it all. And then Jesus said something, something scary. He said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, if you're rich, that should make you scared. If you're poor, well, don't lose the fear. The impossibility of a camel going through the eye of a needle, he says, that's it. And then the, the disciples said, well, we, whoa, whoa, whoa. Then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And then Peter says, he's a thinking guy. Peter says this, Peter answered and said to him, see, see, we have left, we have left all and followed you. Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? You were thinking it sounded kind of bad when I said you wanted something. Well, here's the apostle, soon to be apostle Peter, saying, what's in the will? What is it? What shall we have? And so Jesus said to them, here's a blessing of abundance to his disciples. Jesus said to them, assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, listen, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you have, who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, baby. Position. We're going to be there, but now listen, not just the disciples, not just the 12, verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake. See, there's always a leaving with Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to leave everything else behind as inconsequential. But when you do, abundance. When you do, wealth. Those who have left all these things for my name's sake shall listen, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Receive a hundredfold. I'm not very good on math, but that math I can do. Add a couple zeros, you're in. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The passing on of wealth. And in general, this does mean the possession of salvation, as we just read. They'll inherit eternal life. But even more than that, the eternal redemption that we've already mentioned in verse 12 of chapter 9. But I want to get to the specificity, the, the specifics of this wealth, of this abundance, and here they are. The book of Hebrews is going to a crescendo. It's going to a glorious pinnacle of faith. Many people who had believed the promise that they had received from God, whether that be Abraham, whether that be Noah, whether that be Moses, whether that be Sarah, what God had told them, they believed in it like they believed in the inheritance was being passed down to them in a last will and testament. They trusted it. And they lived on it. Hebrews 10 tells us this in verse 34. 
You had compassion on me in my chains, the writer says, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Joyfully expected. I love to use the word plundering. I mean, you know, when you give a little in the offering plate, you probably don't feel like you've been plundered. But if almost everything you've got is put in the offering plate, you've just voluntarily plundered yourself. That's the picture. You plundered uh, of your goods knowing that you have. Why would you do that, by the way? You know, I think you should give 10% and never anything more, right? It's like the tax guy. Never give more taxes than you have to. And that's how you'll do it if you're bound to this earth. If this is all there is, then keep as much as you can. It's good advice if that's all there is. But these people thought differently. You allowed your goods, your possessions, your wealth to be plundered now, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves where? In heaven. We look into heaven. We see Jesus ministering in heaven. We know that he is passing on to us an inheritance. And he's guaranteeing that from heaven an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, it tells these ones who have just had their goods plundered, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. And then he says, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you then may receive the promise. You know the thing about last wills and testaments? To receive them, it requires a, a very important, a very important character trait. Patience. Because you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait, knowing that you will receive after you've done the will of God. We would kind of like to front load it, wouldn't it? Give me the inheritance now, then I'll follow you. No, he says, follow me. There is an inheritance. Show me your faith. Do you believe God has an inheritance is proven in faith by how you live, how you wait. Hebrews 11, this is the faith chapter. This comes out of the faith chapter. What is it involved? It involves all these who came before who received a promise of inheritance and none of whom in the entire chapter 11 of Hebrews received it. They died waiting. Verse 13, Hebrews 11, these all died in faith. You want to die in faith? Die believing you have an inheritance. Permanent. Abundant. In heaven. That's faith. How did they do this? Listen. They all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Today, your glimpse is into heaven. Your inheritance is there, and you get to glimpse it. This is the bestseller book on heaven for believers. This is what's waiting. This is the good stuff. Be patient. They see it far off. They were assured of them. Listen. And embraced them. And confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Well, my inheritance isn't here. Can I have an amen? Your inheritance isn't here. It's later. But you can live like you believe it. Verse 14 of Hebrews 11, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he, listen, for he, listen, for he has prepared a city for them. Ye who think you have a city, say amen. Oh, that was dismal. Up from the grave he arose. That was horrible. 
Those of you who faith and live in faith, you talk about this. See, what's the problem with Christians in this world today? We say, except Jesus Christ, your life is going to be so much better. If you say that, you just lied. You should say, except Jesus Christ, you will enter the trials and the tribulations of Jesus. You will follow him by taking up your cross and walking after him. And after that, after you die, or he comes to get you, you will receive a city, a heavenly city. Do you want to hear about my city? You ever start sharing the gospel that way? Hey, buddy, <laughs> listen to this. I got me a city. Oh, yeah. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we'll never more wander but walk on what? Streets that are pure as gold. The blessing of abundance. Abundance in the Lord. Thirdly, the passing on of position. The third significant blessing of inheritance. The passing on of position. See, when you inherit in a line of inheritance, you also receive from the testator his position, his status his standing, and that is exactly what the Bible describes us receiving from the Lord Jesus Christ, and we call it the blessing of adoption. The blessing of adoption, of legal adoption. And there are two important aspects of, of adoption to remember, and they're revealed here, even in the text of the early portions of Hebrews. I take you all the way back to where this began. And this is why I love this book of Hebrews. There is no more pure form of rhetoric than what the writer of Hebrews wrote here in the Greek fashion. Uh, he must have been, and we don't know who he is, someone who is classically trained, and God used him to write in this way so that the revolving door of these truths might be brought up again and again and again in this perfect prose and then culminating in ever more truth all the way to the end. How did this book start? This book started this way. Chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, listen to verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his what? his son. But he didn't stop there in the text, did he? He just told us something more in this text about his son. God's son, listen, whom he, God, has appointed what? Heir. How do you become an heir? With a last will and testament. You're in the line. You're the heir, the heir apparent. He has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. God the Father gave to God the Son everything because he's the Son. He is his Son. And then we skip down to verse 5 where we read these amazing declarations of the greatness of Jesus Christ better than all the angels in, their, in his position, he is higher than all the angels. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Rhetorical question, answer, no one. And again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a what? A son. And we're not done yet. We're going to go to verse 8. But to the son, he says, your throne your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. He is the Son. And when the Son gives to those who will inherit from him to his inheritors, he shares his, his inheritance. He is the Son of God. He is the heir of all things. He has a forever throne, and he's passing that wealth and that position down to the called ones. 
Are you happy today with your lot in life? Oh, Pastor, why'd you have to ask that? This Easter was going so good until then. Are you disappointed by what he's giving you now? Or the load you bear and the consequences you share and the difficulties that you walk in, then get your feet off the ground and look into heaven. Get your glimpse right. Because we have become adopted sons. He passed on his position, the blessing of adoption. We become sons of God himself. And that means acceptance. Galatians 3, 26, for you are all sons of God. Let me read that again. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For how as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. And what? And what? Heirs according to the promise. Can I have an amen? And then skipping down to Galatians 4 verse 6. And because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son. Into your hearts crying out. Abba. Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son then an heir of God through Christ. He died, he died, he died and passed on an inheritance of sonship to us. But where would I be if I didn't give you the final, the fourth blessing of inheritance? And that's where we come to your life today? How will you walk out of here today, this Easter Sunday? Will you have been affected by the truth that an inheritance is yours and waiting? And you, by faith, are in waiting. But while you wait, and while you're patient, there is a passing on of responsibility. How wonderful to be so permanently endowed. How great it is and grand it is to receive the wealth of God Most High through His Son and Heir of all. How grand it is to have our name named Son of God along with Him. But do we think that with all of that position and all of that power and all of that permanence, we are going to be left with zero to do by way of responsibility? Think again. The blessing of duty. The blessing of duty. Oh, we need that in this nation. Oh, we need that in this church. We need it in the church of Jesus Christ across this nation. The blessing of duty. See, being in Christ reminds us of the responsibility to obey our new father as Jesus Christ did as he walked on this earth. How did Jesus live? Before Easter, Jesus lived this way. In John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do what? The will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What God said do, Jesus did. He waited for his inheritance. John 8, 29, And he who sent me, Jesus said, is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do. I always do those things that please him. The blessing of responsibility and duty. He's passed on a duty to us. The results of his redemption. To get our minds around the book of Hebrews, to get ourselves into this, we realize that he's teaching us all of these things about Jesus, our great high priest, his constant ministry for us, so that we will believe it, and then we will live like it. We're going to turn from truth about Jesus to a calling of us to duty in chapter 10. For nine chapters, we're building to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, you're going to find verses like these. Chapter 10, 24. To all believers, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. 
Why are we doing that? Because in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Do you confess hope in the inheritance of Jesus Christ, a city that is coming, a name, the name with God, all the power and possessions that God has for you? Then you can consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Oh, pastor, I knew you'd get to that. You pastors all do this. Come to church, come to church, come to church. Why? Because it's a duty. It's a responsibility that is blessed. Not forsaking the assemblies of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. You see, the reality is, I shouldn't be the one exhorting you. You guys should be exhorting each other to get to church. And to love one another. And to stir up good works. What good works have you done today, brother? When's the last time somebody asked you that? Matter of fact, I haven't asked you in a while. <laughs> oh. Chapter 12 will go on with these same kinds of things. After the whole entirety of the faith chapter of those who did work, not receiving the promise but waiting for it. Chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly, unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisons as if prisoners as if, as if chained with them, and those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. The result of the redemption of Jesus Christ is to serve him. And by the way, that was the one piece I left from last week, and I left it because we need it now. After all the glories of the inheritance of Jesus Christ, Chapter 9, verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works, purpose to serve the living God? The privileged responsibility of service. Paul said it this way, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It only makes sense, you son of God, you inheritors of the kingdom of God, you who have a forever salvation. Let me give you a pearl. We do not serve God out of obligation. We do not serve God out of obligation. We serve God because of transformation. You have been transformed. You have become an inheritor of God, very God, through His Son, Jesus Christ. You've been given an eternal redemption, and so you serve not out of obligation. If I don't do this, I lose heaven. You do it because you are. There's a song we used to sing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. To be a son with Jesus is to be in the family of God and we carry a family name, it's Christian. And in the family we honor that name by duty by responsibility. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God and washed in the fountain, cleansed in his blood. And then it says, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And if that's true, then get to work. How you leave on Easter Transformed, transfixed, or transient, off to wander more.
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. He had to die. He can't be here for us to inherit and for us to have a minister in heaven. Wait for it. It's coming soon. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Messiah, Jesus Christos, the Son of God. Bless, bless, Lord, we pray, we who bow. Call the uncalled right now to faith in you, to receive an inheritance. And if you are called by Jesus this day, I pray that right now you will say, forgive me, O Lord, a sinner. I believe you took my place on the cross. I want to be a son and inherit. And to you who know this to be true, let us walk from here in good works that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. And help me by saying, Amen.